Are you familiar with the concept of a defining moment? A defining moment has been described as that point where the essential nature or character of a person is revealed or identified. It could involve a big decision that you have to make or a tra tragic event that you must rise above. The defining moment of my father-in-law's career came early in the 1970s when he was working for Control Data Corporation, which was one of the pioneers in the computer industry. His name was Bud, and Bud led the personnel side for Control Data's American employees in Europe for several years. He was asked to help plan an international gathering of all of the company's top executives one year. And he suggested a, uh, a resort that had been in Bergenstock a mountain resort overlooking Lake Lucerne in Switzerland. He wasn't sure how everybody else would react to it, but he knew that it was a remote, beautiful location where they could think and plan and they'd be inspired. A couple of days into the conference, the founder of the company turned and asked, whose idea was it to have the conference here? And one of the vice presidents pointed to my father-in-law and he said, Bud planned this. And there was a nod from the president. Several months later, when the family returned to the United States and his uh, season in Europe was over, he found that he was promoted to become one of the vice presidents of the company. Years later, when we took a family trip to Europe, we wanted to go when my, my kids were old enough to appreciate it and before my in-laws were too old to be able to fully enjoy it, Bud insisted that we spend a couple of days at the end of the trip in Bergenstock as the highlight of that trip. And he explained over dinner one night that this had been the site of the defining moment of the early days of his career in the computer industry. Question, have you experienced a defining moment in your career or in your life so far, or in regard to the development of your faith? Today in part four of our Living in Exile series, we're learning from a young woman named Esther a woman whose defining moment came during the Jewish exile in the Medo-Persian Empire. In this series, we have been discovering principles for living well in exile that can help us make the most of our current state-imposed or self-imposed internal exile that you and I are going through today. This fourth lesson comes to us from a time that was about 50 years after the ministry of Daniel had ended. And there's a pivotal verse that describes the passion and the power of Esther's story. It comes to us in Esther chapter 4, verse 14, in this small Old Testament book. And the speaker at this point in the story is Esther's cousin, a man named Mordecai, who had become her legal guardian and advisor. This is what he says. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come from another place but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. The key memorable phrase in that verse is, for such a time as this. Now I believe that God leads people into defining moments where there's a moment in time that all of a sudden uh, you begin to realize what God's purpose was for your life. And it's an exciting time when you start to realize, oh, this is why all these other events happened in my life and they prepared me for this moment. Now, there are five key factors that led to Esther's defining moment. Let me walk through them very quickly with you.
The first had to do with a new regime. Darius the Mede ushered in the world's most powerful empire back around 522 BC. And Darius and his successors would reign from India all the way to Egypt. Darius was that king who got tricked into the plot that landed Daniel in the lion's den. He died in battle in 486 BC, and his son Xerxes I then reigned over the Medo-Persian Empire from 485 to 465 BC. After solidifying his empire, Xerxes sought to celebrate during the third year of his reign, which leads to the second key factor. He threw a massive party. Xerxes set off 180 days of celebration all throughout his empire. And during these 180 days of celebration, he was showing off the wealth and splendor of his kingdom. Much of that wealth was due to riches that were taken from other nations, other kingdoms that he had conquered. And he wanted all of his subordinates to be impressed with the glory and wealth that he had accumulated and with his standing in the world. To cap off that 180-day celebration period, Xerxes called for a week-long party and he invited all of the best and the brightest from his kingdom to be a part of this particular party. It took place at the king's palace, inside an enclosed garden at the palace. And there were couches of gold and couches of silver to pe for that people could sit on. And there was a mosaic pavement with all kinds of the most precious stones in the world. The garden itself was draped with the most expensive linens that the world knew at that time. And the key feature was that the best wines in the kingdom were flowing for all of the king's guests. This wine was served in golden goblets, and each guest was invited to drink with no restrictions. While the king held this seven-day wine-sodden banquet with no restrictions, his queen, whose name was Vashti, held her own banquet for the royal women of the palace. What could possibly go wrong, right? You've got a seven-day drinking fest, and you've got a group of women meeting nearby. This led to the third key factor, a bad decision by King Xerxes. Now, at this point, King Xerxes was in high spirits. That's literally what the Bible says about him. And he commanded his servants to bring the queen to display her beauty before all of his partying friends. I'm sure that the queen was just dying to be pulled away from hosting her own event with all of her friends. And I'm sure that the queen was dying to parade her beauty be before all the king's drunken friends who'd been drinking wine without limitation in any way they wanted over the past seven days. Doesn't this sound like an ideal situation? Of course not. And this bad decision was compounded by bad advice. The queen refused the king's command to come and parade her beauty before all of his friends. And soon the king and his advisors had turned her refusal into a kingdom-destroying example. They began to fret and think, well, if the queen turns down the king's command, how can a man rule his own household? And each and every one of the king's advisors continued to pile on with this bad advice. And Queen Vashti was soon stripped of her role as the queen of, of the empire and banished from the king's sight forevermore. That led to the fourth key factor, a beauty contest. The same friends who advised the king now told him that uh, he needed a new queen and the best way to do this 
was to stage a beauty contest that would go on throughout the land. So in every province of the kingdom, messengers were sent to enlist beautiful young women to become a part of this beauty contest. The winner would become the new queen of the Persian Empire. Now, you and I may need to give Esther a break because we think of Esther as a beauty queen and, and one of perhaps many wives of this king, but she may not have had a choice in this. Here's where we gather this. Verse 7 of chapter 4 tells us that Esther was lovely in form and figure. That was the Bible's way of saying she was a beautiful young woman. But verse 8 says that she was also taken to the king's palace. Not that she volunteered for this role, but that she was taken into this role. And you get the sense that, that she was forced and she had to make the best of a bad situation. The first thing she did was she found favor with the man who was in charge with the king's harem. That automatically tells me that there were several other women who were also being a part of this selection process. And the king may have had several wives, but only one would be the queen. And then she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments. This might have been desirable and, and even an, an attractive reality. There were special oils and there was myrrh, which was a very expensive perfume. And then there was a regimen of cosmetics that were the best in the world that were applied to her during that time. And we find that at the end of this 12-month period, when she was brought before the king, that the king was more attracted to Esther than any of the other women who were part of this contest. He chose Esther and placed a crown on her head and then began to celebrate with another great banquet, this time in her honor. But we're told one key detail, that in all of this, Esther never revealed her true identity as a Jewish woman. He, she kept that secret to herself, perhaps under her own wisdom and perhaps under the advisement of her cousin and her mentor, Mordecai. The last of these five key factors that led to Esther's defining moment was a devious plot that was at work behind the scenes. Near the end of chapter two, Mordecai, Esther's cousin and guardian, overheard two of the king's royal officials talking about a plan to assassinate the king. He got word to Esther, and then Esther got word to the king. And when it was interrogated, or when the men were interrogated, it was, it was found that Mordecai's suspicion was correct, and that this plot had been at work behind the scenes. And so the two men, the would-be assassins, were caught, and they were dealt with. And Mordecai's act of bravery was written about in the annals of the king. The king would soon forget about this, but towards the end of the story, this would come back one day when the king would read about what Mordecai had done and want to honor Mordecai. All this leads to our talk today about when your moment comes, when you discover that defining moment of your life. And as we unfold Esther's story in chapter 4 of this little book that has her name on it, we find a, a few key details. Here's the first. When your moment comes, it will be about something bigger than you. Bigger, larger, grander. Verse 14 says, For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Mordecai was the speaker who makes this statement. 
Now, the king's best friend was a huge social climber named Haman. Haman was part of a long line of people who hated the Jewish people, going back to the days when the people of Israel were escaping an earlier exile from Egypt. At that time, the Israelites were attacked from behind by soldiers of the king of the Amalekites. The rabbis through the years taught that whenever the Amalekites caught a Jewish soldier, they mutilated part of his body. And so there was a a great enmity between the Jewish people and the Amalekites that had been festering for literally hundreds of years. Haman is identified in Esther chapter 3 as a descendant of King Agag, the leader of the Amalekites in an earlier generation. Agag was the Amalekite king that Israel's first king, Saul, led off the hook. This long-standing cruelty was why Saul had been ordered by the Lord to destroy the Amalekites. But in this case, Saul refused to act as the Lord's deliverer of justice. And the hatred of the Jews continued in that clan of people right on until the time of Haman and Esther and Mordecai. Mordecai becomes the one upon whom Haman's hatred was visited. Mordecai was letting Esther know that this moment that she lived in was far bigger than her role. Haman, the top prince and favorite friend of the king, had created a plan to annihilate the Jews in the Persian Empire. And Mordecai, a man of faith, believed that God would rescue his people from this plot. This may have been why Esther had been able to win the Miss Persia contest in the first place and why the Lord had seen to it that she was chosen as the new queen of Persia. I have news for you. Whatever you're doing, it may seem insignificant at the time, but God has a purpose for your life. He has a purpose for every woman, for every man, for every teenager. Sometimes you and I can only see how God has orchestrated events in our lives when we look backward and we say, oh, this begins to make sense. But sometimes the importance of one particular event raises the awareness that we have that this may be the defining moment of our lives. Mordecai, with his statement, recognized that this was most likely that defining moment in Esther's life, and he challenged her to stand up strong in the midst of it. So when your defining moment comes, it will be about something that is bigger than just your life. The second observation we make is that when your moment comes, it may also involve some risk. Esther responds to Mordecai, and part of her response includes these words. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. What's behind that? Persian law at that time stated that no one could enter the king's presence uninvited. If they entered the king's presence without a royal invitation from the king himself, they risked the death penalty. This was thought to be too bold of a presumption that you could enter into the king's presence and knock him off his agenda or think that whatever was on your mind was so important that you could interrupt the king. But there was one lone exception to this rule. If the king chose to extend his scepter toward the person who had walked in uninvited, their life would be spared. And that's what Esther was hoping for. She was hoping that since she had already gained the king's favor, that as she walked into his presence, that he would extend the scepter and he would listen to what she had to say. 
your defining moment may involve risk too. As I look back on my own life, it becomes very clear to me at this point in life that my role in planting North River was the defining moment of my life. Now this didn't involve uh, life and death risks, but there was some risk involved. What kind of risk? Well, the risk of failure for one thing, or maybe wasting years and resources. There were no guarantees that this would work. In fact, there were several people who tried to tell me and our first steering team that this kind of church would never fly in New England. It hadn't been done before. And we took a few arrows in the back in those days in terms of the harsh criticism that other people had of what we were trying to do. It almost seems hilarious today because there are so many other churches who, who've joined us and who have copied ideas that have come from North River. The third discovery that we make is that when your moment comes, it will demand serious prayer and fasting. If we go back to verse 15, we find a little bit of the fuller response that Esther gives. It says, Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Susa was the capital city where King Xerxes was, was, was reigning. And then she adds, do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Here is where we discover that Esther the beauty queen was also a woman of faith. She comes up with a plan for prayer and fasting. She was willing to risk her life but not before bathing that act with a tremendous amount of prayer and fasting, and not before enlisting all kinds of other Jewish people to pray for her and with her, and also to fast. And she called for three days of fasting, serious fasting and prayer before entering into the king's presence on her own. Think about this concept of fasting for a moment. In the Old Testament, fasting was never to be done in order to earn favor with God. But fasting could come in several different forms. Sometimes it involved whole days. Sometimes a fast from sunrise to sunset. Sometimes there would be no food at all. Sometimes there would be a restricted diet and certain forms of food would be avoided. Often fasting was, connect fasting was connected to prayers for deliverance from some period of great danger. And sometimes fasting was tied to confession of sin, sin for an individual, sin for a, from a group, or the sins of a whole nation. And at times, the food that was avoided was set aside in order to give to those people who had been victims of injustice and who were on the poorer side of things. In this case, Esther calls for an absolute fast, no food and no water for three days and three nights. What she wanted people to do was to divert all that attention that would go into preparing food and eating food into spending time calling upon God. And she wanted people as well to uh, set aside the, their food and turn that physical hunger into a spiritual hunger that would drive them to plead for mercy from God. Everything great that is worth doing is worth serious amounts of prayer. If I go back to that season 31 years ago when we started North River, 
we just, the decision to plant North River rose from one prayer meeting with five people. And I remember that night as Sue and I drove away from the home where we were meeting, the first thing she said when we got into the car was, well, what do you think? And my response went something like this. I don't think we will know that this is truly God's will for us until we can look in the rearview mirror and see whether or not he blessed our efforts. But I have something inside of me that tells me that if we don't at least try, that I am failing God in this respect. It's interesting to look backward more than 30 years ago now and realize God really did bless those efforts and God's hand was in those efforts. Your defining moment will call for some serious prayer and, and an investment of, of time seeking the heart of the Lord. We learn all this today from a woman who might have been forgotten by history. Esther was, remember, just a beauty queen. At this point in time, we don't see anything great from her, but she rises at the point of the challenge. And we find that she had faith and the presence of mind to offer her role in her life to accomplish the Lord's will at a pivotal time for God's people. That leads to the big idea that I'm trying to get across here this morning. Your defining moment comes when you have the faith to offer what you have to accomplish what the Lord wants done. Your defining moment comes when you have the faith to offer what you have to accomplish what the Lord wants done. And that's exactly what Esther did. She offered her life, she offered her role as the queen of Persia at risk of her own life in order to accomplish the salvation of God's people from a great imminent threat. And of course that leads to the final observation. When your moment comes, other people will be blessed. God uses us in every day and every age to do things that allow him to bless other people through our actions and through our caring. Esther's defining moment was more about protecting God's people than it was about her own life or her position. In the end, the king allowed the Jews to defend themselves from Haman's devious plot. Haman had tricked the king into signing an order that gave Haman and his tribe the ability to attack all of the Jewish people in the Persian kingdom on one specific day. And the king couldn't undo that law. He couldn't erase it. But what he could do was he could create a new edict that would allow the Jewish people to defend themselves on that day. And Esther, when she presented this dire situation to the king, led him to that kind of a move. Every year, the holiday of Purim is when Jews around the world celebrate and remember Esther and God's deliverance of his people in the midst of the pagan Persian kingdom. Mordecai, at the end of the story, was elevated to a position that was second only to King Xerxes himself. One night, King Xerxes pulled out the annals of the history of all the events of his kingdom and he read about what Mordecai had done at that earlier time that we talked about in chapter 2, where he had overheard this plot to assassinate the king. And the king was grateful to Mordecai, and he honored Mordecai. And Mordecai ended up being lifted to the second highest position in the entire kingdom. He had followed Esther's instructions completely. But it's interesting that this biblical book is named after Esther not Mordecai, and there's a reason for that. 
For this is the story of a faith-filled beauty queen who recognized that God could use what she had been given in order to accomplish great things on behalf of his people. Christian writer Amy Bird notes that one of the myths that has been taught through the years is that the Bible only in includes stories of women who lead in times when there are no good men available. While the book of Esther absolutely blows away that myth because Mordecai was there all along, a strong, wise, godly man who was advising her. But the defining moment comes when Esther risks her own safety on behalf of other people. There's another Old Testament book called Ruth. And this one, too, is, is written uh, and given the title of its lead character, Ruth. It doesn't have the name Boaz on it, even though the man that she eventually married, Boaz, was a man of great standing and of great strength and even fulfills the role of the kinsman redeemer, making him a prototype for some of the work that Jesus did as our redeemer. So ladies, let me say this one more time here on Mother's Day. God recognizes the work of great women who lead and who act with boldness and who are led by God's Spirit. Your defining moment comes when you have the faith to offer what you have to accomplish what the Lord wants done. Think about this thought as we wrap up this message. Is there something that God has already put on your heart where he's challenging you to step out in faith in order to serve in a new way or to start something that hasn't been done yet? I believe that God puts dreams on our hearts and if God has put a dream on your heart, your defining moment may come when you step out in faith and you dare to offer what you have so that the Lord can accomplish what he wants done. And if he's prompting your heart in that way, you're in for a great season of life. And we're in for a great blessing. Let's pray. Father God, I ask that you would use this story of Esther and her courage and her faith and her willingness to rise above her fears and to offer her position in order to be used for good on the behalf of other people. I ask that you'll use this to inspire and to remind us that you have a purpose for each and every person's life and that our defining moments often come when we step into that purpose that you have given for each of us. So I ask that you would continue to, to give dreams and uh, that you would continue to raise up thoughts of, of new ways to minister and new ways to lead, whether we benefit the community around us or the church itself or our families. But God, I ask that you would do great things through people who offer to you what little we have and watch you work at accomplishing what you long to see done. And we pray that you will use these prayers of ours today to accomplish your will in our lives and in our time. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Thank you for being a part of this today, and I look forward to seeing you again next week. God bless.